So we are uh, in this series that we've called Rooted. Uh, we're looking at the book of James, and uh, I want to start off with kind of a story about my life. Uh, seventh grade was a uh, different year for me. Uh, the, the school system that we were a part of, they had three elementary schools in three different towns, uh, Knightstown, Carthage, and Kennard. And uh, once you got to seventh grade, though, all three of those uh, elementary schools came together to form the junior and senior high school. And so we had seventh grade through 12th grade all in one building. Uh, it was all located in Knightstown. Uh, and it was the first time that we got to do a number of different things. First time that we, uh, as, as people from Knightstown, got to meet the other people, the people from Carthage and Kennard. Uh, we had played sports with them, but that's about all we knew about them. So we were making new friends, uh, new faces, and that type of stuff. Uh, it was also the first time that we got to switch from class to class. Uh, each period, you had to move from one class to the other. And so this was the first time uh, that we got to do this. We also uh, got lockers for the first time. And so uh, as a seventh grader, you know how many people forgot how to open up lockers? Oh, yeah, that was a fun time learning how to, to open up uh, the locker system and stuff. And so it was a fun time. My, my uh, f thing that I remember the most about my first day of, of seventh grade uh, though was my life science class. Uh, our teacher, uh, he had a strange sense of humor. Uh, he, uh, he wanted to teach us about stimulus, okay? And stimuli are, are basically anything that causes one of your five senses to fire off into your brain, all right? And so the way that he decided that he was going to teach us about this uh, involved a long piece of black iron, all right? And so he had this big pole of black iron, and uh, if you happen to walk into a high school and happen to walk into the science rooms, you would notice one thing. There is no carpet in that part of the school, all right? For good reasons, right? Because who wants a chemistry experiment to go all wrong on the carpet, all right? So they had uh, tiles that basically just covered the cement ground uh, over it, and he took this iron bar without us realizing what he was going to do, and he threw it onto the ground, and he taught us real quick what it means to have your senses stimulated, all right, and so we all, we all jumped, not expecting what was happening, uh, and, and the noise that he produced by this uh, was so loud that you could hear it throughout the rest of the high school. Uh, I remember as a senior, the first day of school, hearing a loud clattering noise all the way down from the other end, and we knew immediately that it was the science teacher teaching new seventh graders what this meant. Now, uh, his sense of humor went to this far. Uh, he left that bar in his classroom on his chalkboard, and if you fell asleep, he would come up behind you, and he would take that bar, and he would stimulate you again. <laughs> All right, and so that's, that's kind of uh, who he was. That's the one thing that I remember about the entire seventh grade class, I mean, my entire science class. That's the only thing I remember from that, okay? Uh, that's how good he was at teaching this. And what he was trying to teach us was the difference between something that is alive and something that is not, all right? If something is alive, no matter what type of organism is it is, if you have the right stimulus, you can stimulate it, all right? You can cause it to do things. If it's a plant, you give it the light, and it will grow towards the light, if you give it water, it will, it will do different things. As human beings, we have five different uh, senses that, depending on what you do, can cause different reactions inside you. And what he was trying to show us was that if you can be stimulated, it means that you are still alive. But 
if at some point in time they try to do something that used to cause a reaction and it no longer does, more than likely that thing is not alive. All right, you take a rock. Is it alive? No. You try to uh, uh, shout at it. Does it move? Does it flinch? No. All right, and so uh, that's kind of uh, his, was his very simplistic definition of what was alive and what was dead. And I want to take that concept today and, and look at it from a spiritual point. Right, are we alive in our faith or are we dead? Uh, we're in this book, uh, the book of James. We're going to be in chapter two today. And so if you have your Bibles, I inv invite you to open up uh, to chapter two, starting in verse 14. Uh, and James is going to take on this subject. Is your faith alive or is it dead. Uh, James, uh, he doesn't necessarily write a bunch of deep theology. Uh, what I mean by that is he doesn't write why we should believe what we believe. Instead, he writes what's more called practical theology. All right, when James writes about something that we should be believing, he writes it more in the sense of here's how you act as a result of what you believe. All right, and so that's kind of what he's going to do in this chapter. We, we talked last week about how James is, is going to give us uh, a definition of what a mature Christian is. And, and he does this by saying, if you are a mature Christian, then you should have this attribute. And so the attribute that he's going to be talking about uh, is this idea of having a faith that is living. And so here's what he says uh, in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, no works? Can such a faith save them? Uh, this is this is a tough subject, okay, to begin with, because as uh, Protestants, we hear that question and we have a, a, an almost instantaneous answer to that. Can such faith save you if you have faith without deeds? All right, uh, let me just backtrack for a moment. As uh, we need to know a little bit about church history, because I just used the big word, right? Protestants, okay. So, church history. Uh, when the early church started to, to grow, once we get past the uh, uh, New Testament time period, the first century, uh, we see that the early church began to uh, be controlled, be ruled by five major cities. They were called the five metropolitans. They were Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Uh, the only one that you really need to know about is Rome, because basically what happened is in the late 400 ADs, uh, Rome was sacked. All right, the Vandals came in. That's why we call it Vandalism. Uh-huh. All right, little connection there. Uh, others, some other Germanic tribes came in. They conquered Rome, and it basically left this divide. The, the western half of the Roman Empire fell, and the eastern half stayed strong, but they were split from each other. So essentially, all of Europe was separated from Constantinople and the rest of the Roman Empire, what we call the Byzantine Empire. All right, and so when that happened, the only city of those five that had any influence over the European churches was Rome. And so Rome became this superpower controlling everything, and that's why we call it the Roman Catholic Church, all right, because Rome is in charge of it. All right, and so uh, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church uh, later into its life started to, to uh, encourage a, a faith that was based on works. And so they had all kinds of different things that you did. And if you wanted salvation, if you wanted to go to heaven, you had to ha check off all these different things. All right? And so that's kind of how it was. And so uh, in the 1500s, people didn't really like this anymore. 
And so in 1517, a guy by the name of Martin Luther went and he, he came up with 95 arguments that he wanted to argue with the Catholic priests. And he wanted to have an answer. They wanted to have a dialogue with them. All right? And one of them was this idea that we are saved not by works, but by faith and faith alone. And so, so we have this understanding within Protestantism that we don't want to be saved by works, we want to be saved by faith. And so then when we get to James, all right, we read in James this question, can such a faith that doesn't have works save you? And our answer as Protestants are is, what? No, yes, no, what? Oh, we believe that faith alone, right? So a lot of times as Protestants, we want to say, yes, James, we know that it's faith alone. And we read in Paul that, that that's kind of what he says, right? Well, not really. I think this is where we need to remember that James is a Jew and he's writing to Jewish Christians and we have to put on our Jewish thinking caps. All right, so here, here's what we have to understand. Faith for the first century Jew was all about works, right? to the extreme. When, when they said you are, need to be a faithful Jew, they meant you need to keep everything in the law of Moses. All right? And so, so we have on this one hand uh, that the Jews believed that in order to be saved, they had to do all this work stuff. Right? And it was to the point that not everyone could. Only the really good people did it, and they were called Pharisees and Sadducees or whatever religious group that they decided to associate with themselves. But this wasn't the vast majority of the Jews. Right? Most people couldn't do what these guys were doing. Right? And so when Christianity came onto the scene, and Christianity said, you need to just have faith, you're saved by the grace of God because of what Jesus did, some of those people, and these people that James is probably writing to, went to this completely opposite uh, extreme and said it's by faith only, right? It's this pendulum, okay? And, and, and we see this in our lives, right? We see this happen from generation to generation. One generation will say something over here to which their children are like, that's not right. And they will go all the way to the extreme on the other side and say, this is what we need to do. And their children will look at them like, no, that's not right. And we have this back and forth within culture that happens. And this is what seems to be happening. They've gone from this idea that is by all the works of the law, all this this doing and doing and doing that saves you to this understanding that, no, it's by faith now, and now I don't need to do anything. I don't have to do anything. And it's this complete extreme. And, and what James, I think, is writing to is different than what Paul is writing to. Right? James is looking at these Christians on this extreme, and he's writing to them. And he's saying it's not just by faith, but it's a faith that's working that you need. All right, Paul is looking over to people over here that are Christians that are saying, you know what, I need to follow the law of Moses. I need to do this, this, and this. And he says, no, you're not saved by works. You're saved by faith. And so it may look like they're contradicting, but you have to understand who they're writing to. They're writing to two different situations. And I don't think they contradict each other. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, you're saved by grace through faith. And that, not of works, so that anyone can boast. So he, he says, you're, you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace and faith. And then he says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do something, to do the good works that God has prepared in advance that we should do. 
right? So Paul, he, he says more or less the same thing that James is going to say here, okay? He says, you are not saved by works, you're saved by faith. But your faith is to do something. You, you are God's handiwork to do something. All right, and so that's what I think James is going to do here. So let's read what James says. He's, he's asked the question, he's introduced the subject, or if you have faith but no deeds, does that save you? And the answer to that is, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So, so James, he, he gives us here a, a great example. He says, suppose for a moment you come across someone, a, a Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, and you see that, that, that they don't have clothes and you, and you see that they don't have food. What is your reaction to that? What is your reaction? I mean, he, he says what you guys are doing if you say that is you're saved by faith is you're looking at them and you're saying, man, I know you're having an issue. I know you're having problems. I, I'm going to pray for you. Let, let me pray for you. And you pray for them and you do nothing else. What good is that? I mean, that's the question he's asking. If that's all you do when you have an extra set of clothes and you have food that you can give them and all you do is pray for them, what's the point? I mean, that, that, that's what he's asking here. It's a very good example because I think far too often that's, that's our reaction as Christians. Our reaction far too often is just to say, I, I want to pray for you and, and, and forget about it the next day. And not just with other Christians. I think as when we see another Christian, we're more willing to say, hey, uh, let me help you. But what about people that we don't know? How are we supposed to treat them? I think Jesus answers that. I mean, Jesus, he, he talks about loving your neighbor, and when he was pushed, who is your neighbor? He tells a story about uh, the Good Samaritan and, and this Jew. He's walking all the way. He's being left for dead, and it's not his fellow Jews who walked by him, but a Samaritan that helps him. An enemy of the Jew helps him. And Jesus says that is how you're supposed to treat people. And so we could read into this passage, not just when you see a brother in need, what about your enemy? How do you treat them when you see them in need? Let me, let me ask something a little practical here. Uh, something that, that I'm seeing a lot on Facebook, not necessarily with you, but just Christianity in general. How do we react to the Syrian refugees who want to come into this country? I mean, we see it, I, I see it, and I, I see a lot of anger from people who claim to be Christians. And so maybe if you hear that and you're like, oh man, I don't know, we shouldn't, I don't know if we should be letting them in. Let me just for a moment uh, show you some things, show you some pictures. They're going to pop up on the screen here, and, and they're just going to be playing through. These, this is their home, all right? This is what's going on in their country. The, the, there's a big civil war. It's a nasty mess. It, it's, it's terrible. Both sides are doing, all three sides, there's three parts in this, and they're doing terrible things to each other. But these are cities that their government 
is bombing because they're now controlled by rebels. It'd be like Washington bombing Mexico because some rebels were controlling us. And kids are being hurt. Families are being torn apart. People are being left orphans. And there's some of them that say, you know what? I don't want to be here. Do you blame them? What if it was on the other shoe? What if it was us that was being bombed? And we said, we don't want to be here anymore. How would we want to be received? I mean, as Christians, I think our responsibility is not to judge them. Not to say, well, I don't know, you're Muslims, you might kill us. That, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus didn't say, love your neighbors except for those that are going to kill you. All right? That's not what he says. What Jesus does say is, if they kill you, you should expect it. Because you're a Christian. And love them anyways. And so I don't, I think we're looking at this wrongly. We're, I think we're looking at this in the wrong light. Our, we should not have anger that they're coming in. We should not fear that they're going to hurt us. As Christians, our job is to love them. And if we see a need, our job is to fulfill it if we can. And I'm not saying we need to let everyone that comes in. Okay, I'm not saying that if, if we have the ability to help a thousand of them, we should help a thousand. We have the ability to help 10,000. We should help 10,000. You know, we need to do what we can. I mean, that is, that is what James is saying. He says, you see someone in need, you have the ability to meet it. And if all you do is say, I'm going to pray for you, you're missing the point of having faith in Jesus. Do we understand this? Because James is going to go on. He understands his readers. He understands that they're different arguments and their fears that they might have. And he, he talks about them in, in the next verse, in verse uh, 18. He says, some of you are going to say, because I've talked to you, and I know what you guys think. He says, some of you are going to say, you have faith, and I have deeds. And what James says is, some of you guys are going to say, James, James, James. It's all good and well that you want to help your brother who's naked and has food. But I don't have to, because I'm good here in my faith. I don't need those things. Maybe you say, Tony, Tony, Tony. I understand bad things are happening. I understand those things. If you want to help them as much as you can, that's fine. But for me, I don't need to because I'm secure here. That's the objection. And here's James' response to that. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And what James says is that if your faith is not being lived out, if you cannot prove that you have faith by the way you live, then your faith is pointless. Then maybe you really don't have it. I, mean, I think a funny question is the question, uh, are you saved? Because that's a pointless question. Because we should be able to look at people and how they live and know if they follow Christ or not. And people who examine your life and how you live and how you work and how you do the different things in the community that you do, can they confidently say, yes, he is a Christian because I see his faith lived out. And that's what James is talking about here. We need to be living out our faith in every aspect of our life. 
A couple weeks ago, we talked about how we want to be a church that's about the transformation of lives. Uh, we want to be a part of that. God is moving people to be more and more like his son. And, and it starts with this idea of faith and being connected to him, being baptized in him. But if you, all you ever do is stay here, and you look the same as you did uh, when you were baptized X amount of years ago, if you never look closer and closer like Jesus, then you are being rebellious in what God is doing in your life. God wants you to be more like his son. He wants to transform you into his son's image. And he, he wants you to be looking like Jesus in everything that you do. And if you are not different than you were 10 years ago, than you were five years ago, or 20 or 30 or however long you've been a Christian, if you are no different then you have a faith that is not moving. You have a faith that is dead. Is that you? See, this is a, a question that I can bring up. I can ask you. But until you stop for a moment and examine your own life and come to grips with reality wherever you're at, you're never going to change. And I'm not saying that everyone here is dead. I'm not saying that, okay? Don't, don't, don't put words in my mouth. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you need to be honest with yourself. Is my faith worthless? Am I moving towards action? James, James there uh, in the verse before said that if your faith is not accompanied by deeds, by actions, by works then it is dead, it's useless. Probably a better translation is if your faith doesn't produce these things, it is dead. Is your faith, when you see situations and you believe in Jesus and believe in his mission of seeking and saving the lost, if you see situations and are you moved by them to do what Jesus would do, to be Christians? If not, it is dead. James, James goes one step further uh, in verse 19, he says, you believe that there's one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe that in shudder. And what he says is he, he kind of compares your faith that is not moving to the faith of demons. Do you understand that? And he says their faith is better than yours. Because here's your faith saying, yeah, I'm good, I don't have to move for God. But the demons, they believe the same thing you're claiming to believe, and they shudder, they move, something reacts in them. And if you, Christian, are here and you see something and you're not moved to action, you have a faith that is worse than the angels that were cast out of heaven. Do you understand that? I mean, this, this breaks my heart that there would be people like this. Because I want better things for all of us as Christians. To be moving to where God is wanting us to move. In verse 20, uh, he says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And, and he, he, he goes on with this argument. He's talked to a number of people probably, and he's writing it down. Here's what I've heard. Now they want to say, prove it to me that, that what you're saying is true. And so he's going to give them two proofs, and starting in verse 21. Uh, he says, the first one is, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. And what he does is he talks about this, this pillar of faith, this founding member of the Jewish religion, this one that, that God said, I want to bless you, and, and everyone wants to be a son of Abraham. All right? He looks at him and he says, look at how he lived. He had faith, and his faith moved him to action. Abraham was called by God to leave his family, to go to the place that God showed him. And you know what Abraham did when he got that call? He moved. He didn't sit there and say, God, man, I'm so glad you're going to bless me. I'm so glad you're going to establish a kingdom for me and and all these things and and bless the world through me. I'm just going to sit right here and wait for that to happen. That's not what he did. God said, go, and he went. God said, take Isaac and sacrifice him. And God, Abraham knew that God had promised that it was through Isaac that the nations would be blessed, the blessing would continue. And he had faith that even if Isaac was sacrificed, God would be faithful to raise him from the dead because God does not lie. And he moves the next day to go and take his son up onto that mountain. His faith. Because of his deeds, because his faith caused him to go to action, is made complete. James says this in regards to that. He said a person is considered righteous, not by, or righteous by what they do and not just by their faith. Your faith, you having trust that God is a great God is good. I mean, James says that, great for you. But if that is all your faith is, it's not a faith that is saving. It's not a faith that you are meant to have in Christ. The second example he gives is Rahab in verse 25. He says, in the same way, not even Rahab the prostitute, uh, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And we go from Abraham, this pillar of faith, to Rahab, a prostitute. And in Joshua, we see her faith when she talks to the spies and says, we've heard everything that your God is doing, and we know that we cannot stand up against him. And she believes in this God that is powerful and that she's heard the stories about. And it moves her to action to hide the spies, to give them lodging, to tell the armies of Jericho to go into a different direction, to protect these men. Her faith moved her. Is your faith moving? He concludes with this in the very last verse. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, without actions, without moving is dead. So I have a question that my science teacher asked us. Are you alive or are you dead? It's a question we all have to answer for ourselves. Am I moving? Am I listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? When I see a situation, do I do what God is calling me to do? Am I doing the works that he has prepared in advance that I should do them in? Because if all you do is come on Sunday... Maybe give a little, and you do nothing else from Monday to Saturday for the kingdom of God. You do not have a faith that is moving. Faith that is moving affects every aspect of who you are. It affects how you live at work. 
and it affects how you live at your homes and in your communities. It affects how you move to action when you see a need and you know you can fulfill it. Are you moving? Because the moment you stop moving is the moment you have a dead faith. Let us not be that. The mature Christian, according to James in chapter 2, is the Christian who is moving on their faith. Let us be mature. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we are grateful for the words that, that James gave and the challenge that he gives us to not just trust that you are a good God, not just trust that you know what you're doing and that you are faithful and that you never lie, that we actually move on that. I pray that we'll be challenged to move forward no matter where you're calling us, no matter what you're doing in our lives. Help us to be people that have faith that is not a workspace faith, faith that is not faith by itself, but faith that is moving, that is listening to your promptings, that is striving to be more and more like your son. That is the faith we need. And I pray it's in all of us. Amen.